Well, hey, good morning. As you make your way back, if you would grab your Bible, let's stay standing for the reading of God's Word. Open up to the book of Ephesians. Uh, This is a great day in the life of our church. We are starting a new sermon series. Uh, Let's stand out of respect for God's Word if you're able. We are in Ephesians chapter 1. If you're just here for the first time, we are starting our fall sermon series on the book of Ephesians. We're going to be going just section by section through Ephesians. So each Sunday will be a different uh, section, and we're just going to follow uh, the breakdown that the ESV Bibles in the room give us. So today we're just into the greeting. Uh, We're calling this sermon series Rooted, uh, which comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, about being rooted in the love of God. With that in mind, friend, let's hear uh, from the Word of God. This is Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those blue hardback Bibles. You can turn to page 1,159. Love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. This is Ephesians chapter 1, just the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's be seated and pray together. Father, we love you because you first loved us. Father, would you help us to see the perspective that Paul has? Lord, even writing from a prison cell, he can say such beautiful things because you have revealed yourself to him in Christ Jesus. So, Father, I ask on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ that your Holy Spirit would reveal the truth of the gospel to every man, woman, and child listening to me right now. Father, would we be trophies of grace, redeemed by your blood, and giving you all of the praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Can we just go ahead and just all admit right now that we're all just beat can we all just go ahead and just admit that we're all just kind of beat down right now and kind of tired? You know, a few days ago, I came across an article. Uh, I won't tell you what news station published it, but it was uh, published by several news uh, you know, companies. And uh, it cited a study that was done six months ago by the Barna Research Group. And this article piqued my interest because it stated that 42% of all pastors in America are considering a career change. So six months ago, almost half of every pastor you've ever known is considering a career change. I mentioned this article uh, to a high school teacher uh, a few nights ago that was over at our house for dinner, and uh, I I mentioned this to him. You know what he said? He said, I think all of America is in that same state. He said, I think 42% of all Americans are thinking about quitting or changing their careers. Uh, You know, what's amazing about the news article, uh, as I'm reading this news article about my colleagues, I promise you, I have my hand on my Bible, my mentor from North Carolina was interviewed in the article from the national news. It was crazy. I'm reading this article about all these pastors discouraged. And then it said, my pastor from North Carolina that baptized my kids, that ordained me. Is he, they interviewed him. <laughs> it cut a little too close. But uh, of course, of course, uh, you know, I'm probably one of the only few pastors in the room, but I think each of us could probably resonate that we're all kind of at a point where we're just tired and we're beat down. And, you know, maybe that looks like a career change for you, but uh, even if it's not exactly a career change, there's something about the last couple of years that it feels like we've been pulled out, roots and all, and we're not quite sure where we're supposed to be rooted. So uh, what I want to suggest to you is that... um, If you feel that way, 
which I'm guessing at least 42% of you do, then the book of Ephesians is exactly what you and I need. You know, um, I've been wondering over the, like the post-COVID days, like, you know, like the world, the life philosophy of like, have you ever heard the phrase, all gas, no brakes? Have you ever heard that? It's kind of like football coach speech, right? It's like, how are we going to get through these days? Like, what is life supposed to be like now that we've gone through the last couple of years? Well, some people are like, just keep pushing, just keep trying harder, all gas, buddy, no brakes, dig twice as deep. But I think actually we're kind of seeing like the death of that mentality. Like, I think we're seeing the death of that management style, you know, like when managers are like, all gas, no brakes, everybody move back into the office. And they look around and there's no one in the office. I think we're kind of seeing the death of that. You know, I was talking to um, another friend this past week, and uh, he, he told me he was so discouraged because he feels like for the last several years, he's been told to go take the hill, right? Take the hill, right? Isn't that just like the most masculine thing you've ever heard, right? Take the hill, right? Go fight the good fight. Take the hill. And he said, but what happens when you're told to take the hill, and instead of taking the hill, you fall down the hill and you lose ground, and you're just like have a gaping wound open, he said, I haven't taken the hill. In fact, I've lost ground. You know, it makes me wonder what happens when the hoorah speech doesn't work. You know, what happens when you break your femur on the opening drive of the football game <laughs> and you're sitting on the sidelines and that's what this season looks like? Friends, what if you and I were on the sideline for a season we didn't expect? Well, what I want to suggest to you is that's not too unlike what the book of Ephesians is trying to address. Uh, I want to suggest to you a very simple, you know, introduction to Ephesians, which is uh, the Apostle Paul had moved into a large city named Ephesus, and there he planted a church, and buddy, it was all gas, no breaks. People were coming to Christ left and right. There was a giant riot. The economy was affected because nobody was buying silver idols of Artemis anymore. And buddy, it was a time of gospel growth and everybody knew it. In fact, Luke tells us that all of Asia heard about the revival that was happening in Ephesus. But now, after three years, Paul has moved on to plant more churches. And now, he's been gone from Ephesus by the time he writes this letter it's been at least seven or eight years. Paul hasn't been back to Ephesus. Uh, he had the opportunity at one point to go back and visit Ephesus, and he chose not to. And Paul will never come back to Ephesus. And so Paul is now writing his former church plant eight years after the fact. And there's a sense that the fire that Paul started was starting to cool a little bit. Um, you know, I, I have a fire pit in my backyard, and I have this, this bad tendency to just meddle with things, you know, and I have this tendency to start pulling the fire a little further. What happens if you pull the logs of a fire too far apart? You can just lose the fire. And so if you were to still look at Ephesians, what's happening is, is there's this incredible moment, movement of God that nobody can deny. But now it's eight years after the fact. And everything is sort of reverting back to the mean. Racial divisions are starting to creep back in. The Gentiles are hanging out with Gentiles. The Jews are hanging out with Jews. Paul hasn't been seen in years. Uh, it's a large city, so people are always moving in and moving out. And what's happening is the logs are just starting to separate. What I want to suggest to you is that's not unlike what you and I are facing right now. There's a sense that the logs are separating. So if you were Paul and you're watching your beloved church 
the church in part why you went to prison because you love these kind of people so much. If you were Paul and you were trying to encourage this church to fight the good fight, to take the hill, what kind of advice would you give? What could you possibly tell them in, I don't know, what, four pages? I mean, that's about how long Ephesians is in our Bible, is about four or five pages. What could Paul possibly say? You know, what do the Ephesians need to hear? And by default, what do you and I need to hear? Well, it's interesting. If you were to look at Ephesians, look down at Ephesians for just a second. This is an intro sermon, not just to, you know, the first two verses, but all of Ephesians in a way. Because it's interesting, if you were to try to figure out how is Paul going to speak to these discouraged people, you know, the logs are starting to separate. They're starting to lose the love that they first have uh, for Christ. You know, things are reverting back to the mean, so to speak, right? How does Paul address this? Well, there's all kind of ways uh, for you and me to arrange or to understand the outline of Ephesians. Uh, probably the most influential uh, outline of Ephesians ever uh, was by a guy named Watchman Nee, who was a Chinese pastor, and he wrote a book called Sit, Walk, Stand. And what he suggests in his outline is, you know, the first couple of chapters in Ephesians are all about, you know, chapters 1 through and 3, it's all about sitting in the presence of God. In chapter 4 and 5, he then tells us how to walk the Christian life. And then around chapter 6, if you look at the very end, starting in verse 610, if you go to the very end, we are uh, given this sort of um, amazing charge about our spiritual battle against Satan and the demonic forces And so we stand against the forces of evil. So that's where Watchman Nee uh, told these Chinese Christians that the message of Ephesians is sit, then walk, then stand against the forces of evil. Uh, You know, that's pretty influential, but, um, you know, it's interesting when you look at different outlines and, you know, I've read about 20 commentaries uh, in their introductions to Ephesians. Everybody's tripping over themselves to tell you how amazing Ephesians is. It's, it's the best of the Pauline letters. It's the Alps. It's this. It's like it's the greatest thing that Paul ever wrote. Uh, what I would suggest to you, though, is when you and I look at Ephesians and we try to figure out the outline and the message of Ephesians, I want to suggest to you that to me, when I read Ephesians, it's more like Roxy Ann Peak than it is like the Alps or, you know, like uh, Mount Shasta. Um, you know, if you were to ask somebody, what's the best hike in the area? What kind of answers might you get? You may not really get Roxy Inn, right? You've been there. I mean, it's fine, right? It's fine. <laughs> but it's not like a life-changing hike, right? Maybe Shasta or Mount McLaughlin or, you know, some, some there's, there's grander hikes, right, in our community. But if I said, I want a view of the whole valley, I want to see everything from White City, and I just want to be able to make out Talent and Phoenix. I want to see the Rogue Valley. Where could you go hike and just see the whole span of the valley? Well, that's where Roxy Ann is possible. And the best news is you can drive to the top pretty much. <laughs> you don't even have to hike it, right? Uh, well, to me, Ephesians isn't, you know, the greatest Paul letter, because I don't even know how you categorize Paul's letters as great or less great. I'm not even sure that's a biblical category, you know, great versus less great. But what I would suggest to you is if you want to understand the gospel, if you want to understand the movement of Jesus Christ, and you want to get this, you know, broad perspective of how it applies to people like you and me, Ephesians is where you and I should go. Ephesians is the Roxian, so to speak, of Paul. So all that to say, why did I bring up this thing about an outline? You know, why does it matter? Why should you care at all about the outline? Well, because, friends, the outline is the message. And it is Paul at his absolute pastoral best. 
He's talking to a fire where the logs are separating. Christians whose love has started to cool. Christians who are told to take the hill and buddy, they're building an even bigger statue to Artemis right now. <laughs> and a lot of the church has moved away. We're discouraged and Paul's not coming back. What now? So you know what Paul does? This is beautiful. Look down at Ephesians. If you were to look at Ephesians, there's six chapters. And what's astonishing about the way that Paul writes this letter, and the reason this is the message, is because for the first three chapters, chapters one, two, and three, Paul basically never tells the Christians to do anything. Chapters four, five, and six, he gives 36 commands of things to do. Theologians have pointed this out for a long time. Paul goes with the indicatives, then the imperatives. Okay, you don't have to be a grammar person to understand that. All that means is Paul spends three chapters telling us what is, way before he gets to the second half where he tells us what to do. Paul does not tell them to take the hill. He doesn't tell them to fight the good fight. First, Paul spends three chapters telling Christians who God is, how beloved they are, how they are co-heirs with Christ, how they are the temple of the living God, how their sins have been forgiven. He spends three chapters telling us who God is, who Jesus is, and who we are. This is Paul at his pastoral best. What do you tell somebody when they've been told to take the hill and now they've tumbled down and they have a broken femur? <laughs> Remember who you are. Remember who's on the throne. Watchman Nee put it this way. Before you walk the Christian life and you stand against Satan, you need to sit at the feet of Christ. You sit, then you walk. So one way uh, that I'm going to follow this outline uh, during our time together is look down at Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. What you can write there is indicative. That's uh, the verbal tense for what is. And then around chapter 4, you can see chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the imperatives. An imperative is a command. Go and do this, right? So you can see it in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, I therefore, right, having built you up for three chapters, therefore, knowing who you are, knowing who Christ is, this is 4, chapter 1, Paul then says, now you can walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now bear with one another. Now be eager to maintain the unity. And so 4, 5, and 6 is the command. So what we're going to do today is we're going to follow this pattern. It's the indicatives, then it's the imperatives. It's what is, then it's what to do about it. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 and let's see how this lays out, even in the introduction. Right there, verse 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So we start off right there with what? The indicative. We find out who the author is. He is Paul. And what do we know about Paul? Well, Paul tells us right now he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Now, uh, you don't have to, you know, everything about the life of Paul, uh, but um, we're doing, okay, just we're doing some theology right now, y'all. When I talk about the indicatives and the imperatives, this is kind of like the theological, but you're going to like this. Because, you know, the more you understand the Bible, the more you're going to like it, and the more it's going to change your life. But, you know, when, we, you, when you are introduced to a guy like Paul, we have to kind of step back and say, who in the world is this guy? And uh, the thing you probably most need to understand is Paul, uh, at a very young age, around the time he was a teenager or a young adult, in our eyes, 
what we would call him is a radicalized nationalist zealot, okay? That's what we would think of him as. And the reason I say that is because Paul identifies himself as very zealous for the traditions of his forefathers. And that word zealot right there in the Bible times means you are willing to pick up weapons and fight for your country if you have to. You are willing to spill blood for the zeal that you have. And I'm not just making this up. You can read even in the book of Acts. What was the first introduction that we have to the Apostle Paul? He finds out there's this new religious movement that is claiming that there is a guy who is somehow God, yet fully human, and he's back from the dead, and now he's telling all people that he is Lord. And you know how this young adult, Saul, responds? He helps stone Stephen. He, puts, he helps put to death the first deacon of the church. Now, he doesn't throw any stones. He watches everybody's coats while they go and they kill Stephen, but Luke tells us that Saul approved of them killing him. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. And now you may be thinking, well, maybe Saul is like a sensitive soul. Maybe he's like this impressionable young adult that just got caught up in the moment, and all these guys killed this guy, and he was like, well, I'll hold your coats. Well, no, unfortunately, Luke doesn't allow that in the book of Acts. Because as soon as Paul approves of killing Stephen, the first deacon of the church, it says Saul, that's his other name, Saul, Paul, same person, he turns around and he ravishes the church. He goes around and he even gets permission uh, from the high officials to go around and, you know, Luke says it this way, breathing threats and murder, he arrests men and women, dragging them out of their homes to imprison them. He's what you and I would call a radicalized person, right? He approved of the death, and that does not seem to slow him down. That adds fuel to the fire for him to go around and round up men and women, and it literally says he drags them out of their home. So what in the world changes this guy? What changes in Paul's mind? Well, of course, if you, if you know the story of the book of Acts, this is now Acts chapter 8 and 9, the, the testimony of Paul. What happens to him? What happens to him? It's the only thing that can happen to somebody for them to be truly born again. He meets the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He has an encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ meets him on the road to Damascus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is struck blind for three days. That is what you call an object lesson. <laughs> He's struck blind for three days. He fasts for three days. He either eats nor drinks, and then a man named Ananias, who is given a prophecy from the Lord, meets him and prays for him, and this man named Ananias, who is a Christian, says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. Don't you love that? Brother Saul, the Lord has told me that you must suffer much for the Lord. How's that for a conversion conversation? Let me tell you how much you must suffer for God. And then Saul has something like scales fall from his eyes. What in the world that is? Who knows? And then Paul arises and he does what? What's the first thing Paul does when he gets up? You know what he does? He gets baptized. And then he eats. I like to think he got baptized and then he maybe ate communion for the first time. as his first meal as a believer. But forever, Paul is changed. Forever, Paul is changed. 
And he remembers what Ananias said. Even me, even the murderer that I was, somehow Ananias was able to call me brother. And so the gospel starts to work itself out in Saul's life. Um, I don't have time to tell you all of uh, Paul's, um, you know, life story. Uh, you know, we always, we always want to know what people look like. You know what I mean? Like, what did Paul look like? Uh, we don't know what Paul looked like. There's no ever physical description of him. Uh, in the 100s AD, you know, this guy uh, wrote what, you know, it's not, we don't know if it's true or not, but it's, he's, he said that Christians understood Paul to look like this, a man of little stature, thin-haired upon the head. Nobody else can uh, identify with that? <laughs> Crooked in the legs, of good state of body. <laughs> I think that means he had a belly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what a good, like, you know, little stature, no hair on his head, crooked in his legs, a good state of body, with eyebrows joining. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that means he had a unibrow. And a nose somewhat hooked. You know, that may or, not, may or may not be true. Uh, but what I want to encourage you to do is we're going through this Ephesian series. Is, um, there's, a, there's a wonderful biography of the Apostle Paul. You know, you know, like biographies are cool. People read biographies all the time. Have you ever read a biography on the Apostle Paul? Well, uh, a fantastic biography. Uh, it's over in the Resource Center in the Narthex. I'd encourage everybody to read this biography. Consider it my reading challenge to you for this fall. Uh, is uh, a biography of Paul called Paul, a biography. It's by N.T. Wright. And uh, it's a wonderful biography written just a few years ago. And uh, you know what I love about this copy of Paul? My kids took this the other day while I was sitting in my house, and they drew a little squiggly mustache on his face on the cover, and then you know what else they drew? They drew a unibrow on Paul. I'm like, how did my kids know? This is probably accurate. What Paul wants you to know, however, is Paul is stating who he is in Christ. Paul never forgot, up until the moment that he was put to death by Rome, he never forgot who he was, which was a child of God, the chief of all sinners, but he was forgiven. And what does he tell you and me about himself? Verse 1, Paul, this uh, transformed zealot who's now eating and drinking with Gentiles and uncircumcised people. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. He says, it was not my righteousness that allowed me to be an apostle. It was not my good deeds. It was because God's will chose me. He's echoing all of the old prophets of the Old Testament. And notice that he calls himself an apostle. Now, apostle simply means an emissary or somebody who speaks on behalf of another person. And sometimes it could just be as simple as, you know, somebody's being sent out to speak on behalf of somebody. But what Paul is saying there when he says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, what he's saying is he's not sent by some other church. He's not on behalf of some other body of believers. He is from Christ Jesus himself, and he has apostolic authority to proclaim to you the truth of Jesus Christ. His commissioning, his speaking, comes from Jesus himself because he has seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So apostle, when Paul means this, is a heightened meaning, a unique category of men that God chose to speak to us the message of Jesus Christ. 
You know, if you were to look at the way that the gospel developed, Jesus Christ comes and he preaches the kingdom of God. He dies for our sins. He's raised to life on the third day, and then he commissions the apostles. And those apostles are the men who gave us the New Testament. 13 of the 27 letters in your Bible right now that compose the New Testament come from the Apostle Paul. It's because he has a unique call on his life. Right, so the reason that you and I believe the moral commands of the New Testament, the reason you and I believe that when the Bible says this is good, this is sin, is not just because Paul said it and Paul's some weirdo. We believe it because Paul is an apostle. He has a commission from Jesus Christ in a unique way to direct the church in all truth. Right, Paul will say it this way, the church is the new temple it is the dwelling place of God, and it is built on the foundation. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ, but the foundation is what? Anybody know? The apostles and the prophets, right? This is a unique role for Paul. This is why we listen to him, and this is why it may be worth your time to read a biography. Now, of course, what's you know, amazing about this is Paul goes on and he tells us who God is. Look at verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, I could keep going, but the point remains. The introduction Paul is giving us indicative, indicative, indicative. This is who I am. I am an apostle. Not because of my good deeds, but because God chose me. <laughs> if anything, I disqualified myself, but God chose me. And God is our Father. And my King, my Lord, is Jesus Christ. I mean, imagine that coming out of the mouth of that 19-year-old zealot. <laughs> I know God my Father, and I know my King is Jesus Christ. What a beautiful story. Now, who is Paul writing to? We'll look at verse 1, the second sentence. Paul tells us who he's writing to. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Um, again, you don't have to know everything about Paul's lifetime, uh, but you should understand that uh, for about two years, at the end of the book of Acts, we learn that Paul was in prison. And it's very likely that this is when Paul sat down and wrote uh, the letters of the, to the Philippians, the Colossians, Ephesians, and then the book of Philemon. Now, he was imprisoned, which means, I mean, could you imagine being imprisoned in like a, you know, very low ceiling, you know, place with just a candle to light your day? And Paul would have been chained to a Roman guard. He would have been chained to a Roman guard as he's writing this letter. And friends, the reason you should know that is, I mean, Paul talks about this. Uh, this is Ephesians 3.1. He references the fact that he's a prisoner for Christ. The reason you should know that as you're hearing these words is because, remember, he's writing to a church that's losing the fire. The logs are starting to separate. Things are reverting back to the mean. And now even he himself is in prison. <laughs> he's in prison right now. He's, he can shake the chain and hear it. He knows what the Roman centurion smells like. And yet he has this perspective, this utter perspective to say, you know what the Christians in Ephesus need? They need three straight chapters of nothing but grace. Nothing but grace. You need to sit in the goodness of God. Sit in the victory in Christ. Jesus is alive. He is seated at the right hand of God. It's going to be okay. We'll take the hill later. Right now, sit in God's goodness and love for you. In Ephesians 3, he says that you and I are rooted and grounded in God's love. 
So many of us are thinking that the all gas, no brakes perspective is going to be what saves the church, what saves our society. But friends, what if it's the gospel? (laughs) What if we just need to sit in God's goodness for a while? Where's Ephesus? Uh, Ephesus was one of the most important cities in the ancient world. Uh, it was a harbor city, you know, so it was on the, you know, it had access to ships, you know, so it would be, you know, something akin to like other, you know, port cities, you know, think about like Seattle or Los Angeles or Portland or, you know, I don't know, Chicago, you know, it was a city with access to the water. Uh, it had about 200 to 250,000 people living in it, so that was, that's about roughly the size of Jackson County where we are. Uh, but the thing you need to know about Ephesus, probably more than anything, is it was the site of a lot of magic. A lot of people practiced magic, and a lot of people worshiped pagan gods. And Ephesus was the site of the Temple of Artemis. Uh, Anybody ever heard of the Temple of Artemis? It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Just like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, Ephesus was one of the sites of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and it was the Temple of Artemis' largest structure. It dwarfed all the other buildings in the, you know, other, aside from the pyramids. And so they were very, very proud people. They were very proud of the fact that they were in Ephesus. They were the site of the Temple of Artemis. And in fact, as the gospel's going out, you can read about Paul's experience in Ephesus in Acts 19 and 20. As Paul's preaching the gospel and as Gentiles and Jews are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens is a mob breaks out because they hear about all these people and they won't say Caesar is Lord. They will only say Jesus is Lord. And they don't want to buy any more idols of Artemis. They won't even pray to Artemis anymore. They're only praying to the one God, the God of Israel, and his Lord Jesus Christ. And so it upsets the whole economy of Ephesus. In fact, the silversmiths get together and they say, if this Christianity thing keeps spreading, we're not going to have an economy anymore because nobody will buy our little idols anymore. It's a wonderful reminder that the gospel is not just a private affair, is it? It does shape things in society. But what happens is, is the gospel is going forward. A giant crowd of people find some Christians and they drag them into the, you know, this big amphitheater. And for two hours, for two hours, thousands of people shout at these Christians, great is Artemis of Ephesus. Great is Artemis of Ephesus. Is it any wonder why the Christians <laughs> are just tired? Is it any wonder? And then Paul leaves. And years go by. But you know what Paul calls them? Who does he remind them that they are? Look at the verse in front of you. To the saints who are in Ephesus. Saint here just means holy, set apart. It's an Old Testament term. In Greek it was saint. But it just means you're the holy people of God. You're set apart. You know? Uh, I love what John Calvin says. Every, he says this on his commentary on, on Ephesians. He says, no one, therefore, is a believer who is not also a saint. Every believer in Jesus has been set apart. And on the other hand, no one is a saint unless they believe in Christ. Another way of saying it is when Paul starts his letter, does he immediately start telling them what to do? Don't, don't do that don't do that, you guys. Is that what he starts off with? No, he says, remember who you are. You are a saint. (laughs) You, you are all saints. You are all set apart for God. You are all made holy. You are all beloved. That's who you are. And what do saints do? (laughs) Paul tells us. 
They have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what that word there says, faithful. It could mean trustworthy, but it almost certainly means that they have faith in Christ. That's what it means. Paul says, that's what it is. You're a saint. It means you believe in Jesus Christ. Another way of saying it is Paul begins with the indicative before he goes to the imperative. Now, if you can entertain me for just a second, uh, I, want you to, I want you to grasp this. This is, the, this is theological, but it's very important to always keep this in mind. It is always something, a statement of what God has done. It is a statement of God's blessing and of God's grace. And then, only then, is it moral commands. You know, we think it's the opposite. We think God says something like this. If you follow rules, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, if you follow the rules, then you will be blessed. But friends, that is mixing the order, even in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul does not say, if you resist the urges of the devil, if you do this right, then you will be blessed. What Paul says, in Christ you are already blessed. You are already beloved. You are already the recipients of forgiveness. You are already free. Now, live like a free person. You are already free. Now, live like a free person. That's the same exact pattern that God gives, even when God gives the greatest moral commands of all time. What's the greatest moral command of all time? The Ten Commandments right? This is Exodus 20. This is basic religion, right? But what's the first thing out of God's mouth when he gives the Ten Commandments? You know what he says? I am the Lord, your God. Indicative. This is who I am. I am Yahweh, your God. I have brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, as free people, this is how free people live. They worship one God. They don't make idols. They don't take my name in vain. They honor me one day out of the week. They honor their parents. This is what it means to be free. Notice that God never goes to Moses and says, tell the Israelites that if they obey these 10 rules for a couple of generations, maybe then I'll finally find a way to get them out of Egypt. What's the movement of God? He redeems them out of slavery. By his mighty arm, he delivers them out of the house of slavery, and he brings them to freedom. And he says, now that you are free, this is how free people function. <laughs> this is what it means to be free. Going back even further, I'll stop at this example. When God makes humanity, he makes them male and female. And I love this. This is like literally like the first page of the Bible. Well, I apologize. It's page two. Uh, this is Genesis chapter one. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is verse 28. What happens next? God creates humanity. What's the first thing he does? And God blessed them. It's grace. Then it's moral commands. And God blessed them. They received something. It's the indicative. They are the blessed children of God. And then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's my life verse for the record. <laughs> Do you notice that? It's the indicative. They are the blessed 
images of God. That is who they are. They are made in God's image. He is their creator. They are the created being. He blesses them. He gives them grace. And then he gives them the imperative, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So what Paul is doing in Ephesians is showing us his apostolic insight. No man showed Paul this. This was revealed to Paul by the Holy Spirit of God, that what the Ephesians needed was to know who God truly is, who they are, long before they need to be told a longer list of things to do, to go take the hill. (laughs) And you know why the message of Christianity is not, go take the hill? It's because Paul would tell us that someone already took the hill. What are you talking about? Christ has already taken the hill for you. You are in Christ. Christ's victory is now your victory. You can stand against the threat of the devil and demonic forces because he's already disarmed the rulers and the principalities of this world. You are victorious in Christ. Watchman Nee was right. You sit first, then you walk, then you stand. So let me just finish with this. I've, I've gone on too long. Let me just finish with this. The last verse of our passage. It says, grace to you and peace from God. Uh, You know, fun fact, Paul says that in every letter, all 13 of the apostolic writings of Paul, Paul says that. So that's that's a reminder to you and me that that's kind of important to Paul. You know how like I say certain things like repeatedly, like I don't even know, I just say a lot of stuff. I feel like I say the same 10 things over and over again. This was one of those things for Paul. This was a a Pauline statement. As far as we know, Paul's the only person who first started using this phrase. It's so powerful that even Peter starts to use it, but before Paul, nobody talked like this. And it's actually fascinating. Verse two, Paul says, grace to you and peace. And friends, that is a reminder to you and me that you are not in this alone, that you have the body of Christ alongside of you. You have a family of God who is in this with you. You are not alone. It is not just you and God against the devil. (laughs) Christ already defeated him, and now you are part of the body of Christ, and we get to do this together. We can't lose each other. And the reason I can say that is because Paul comes up with this phrase, and it goes like this, grace and peace. And if you were in the ancient world, If you were living in Ephesus during this time and you were a Gentile, if you were non-Jewish ethnically, if you were any ethnicity except Jewish, your natural greeting was to say the word grace, kairain in Greek. Paul is not a Gentile. Paul is a Jew. And how do Jews greet each other? They do not use Greek words like kairain and grace. You know what they say? Shalom. They say peace. And so what Paul is doing when he says grace and peace is he, it would be like if you and I were in Mexico on a mission trip and I said, hola and hello. (laughs) It would be immediately apparent to you, oh yeah, these Mexican brothers and sisters, they're part of my family in Christ. That's what Paul is doing to the Ephesians. It is grace and peace. He's taking the best of both traditions and uniting them in a unique way around the lordship of Jesus Christ. And friends, he's only gonna unpack that more and more as we get to Ephesians. So what do you need right now? Uh, 
let's just all admit that we're a little beat down, right? <laughs> the logs are separating, the fire is cooling. But friends, what I want to suggest to you is that Ephesians can be a life-changing book if you let it, because the gospel is life-changing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for knowing who you are, that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, I thank you that in Christ we can know who we truly are. Lord, thank you for the grace that you always move towards us in blessing and grace, and then you tell us how to live as free people. Father, as we dive into Ephesians, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be guiding me as I preach and would be guiding every one of our hearts to receive the implanted word. Lord, I pray that you would kindle the fire within us, that we would not lose the love of you that we first had. Lord, that we would hear these moral commands, but not as a list of things to do, but as a reminder that we are free, that Christ has taken the hill, that his victory is ours. Father, we love you. Transform us more and more into the image of your beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness and redemption. Amen.